From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour was made on February 6th in Moscow, where former Fox News host Tucker Carlson sat down with Russian President Vladimir Putin. The interview was the first Putin granted to an American since his country invaded Ukraine two years ago. Analysts say that over the more than two hours of conversation, Carlson lobbed softballs at Putin. And I will join those analysts. I would have loved a chance for this interview. Putin swung back with long descriptions of Russian history. True or not, often it wasn't true. The first answer alone was more than half an hour in length. Carlson didn't fact check it, not in real time, didn't seem prepared to do that, and not after the fact. Carlson did ask Putin if Russia had achieved its objectives in Ukraine and if a change in U.S. presidential leadership would change Russia's approach to the war. But did we learn anything of value. To my ear, there are a couple of things that I would like to talk about this hour. And I'm, you know, when I say I'm critical of Carlson, it's just that if you're going to be the only one who sits down for an interview with a world leader during a war, you cannot let yourself just be a doormat. There are times where I let guests give sort of long descriptions, and I think it's valuable to the audience to at least hear what a guest's mindset is. But half an hour? 35 minutes for one answer of false history that lays the pretext for an invasion now that you won't even call a war? Very strange. Very strange. So this hour, we're going to talk about it um, and, and in the context that I think we need to have this, which is, did we learn anything of value and contextualize it with what Donald Trump said this week uh, about NATO um, when it comes to democratization movements around the world? And there's a lot to talk about here. Dr. Valerie Perry is our guest, Senior Associate for the Democratization Policy Council. Uh, Dr. Perry, welcome back to the program. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Evan. Happy to be talking to you. Uh, remind listeners again, the last time we talked, you were back here in your, you know, your, your native-ish Rochester. But uh, remind listeners where work is for you. I was. Um, no, I came back to Sarajevo in Bosnia and Herzegovina shortly after Christmas. And so while it was nice to be in the U.S. for a couple of months and remember what the pulse is like, I have to be honest, I was also happy to come back here since this has become home over uh, quite some time. But in, in general, I think I'm lucky to be able to have uh, one foot on each side and have both those perspectives and those connections. I was trying to resist cynicism when I heard that Tucker Carlson was going to be doing this interview with Vladimir Putin. I mean, Carlson has been an open supporter of Putin, has defended and praised Viktor Orban, um, you know, has be become very openly authoritarian. And so I'm not surprised he was granted the interview. Carlson said before the interview that, um, hey, I'm the only Western journalist who even bothered to do an interview with the guy and we're having a war and all these journalists are siding with Ukraine, but no one bothered to sit down with Putin, to which the Kremlin came right out and said, uh-uh, not true. He's asked for interviews by people all over the world every day. We just turn them all down. We're giving you this one, which was embarrassing for Carlson. But it, it should have been, at least to an introspective person, a question of, well, why did he say yes to me? So I'd, I wondered how you took it, Dr. Perry, when you first heard Carlson was going to be doing this interview. Uh, I was shocked, but not surprised. Um, Tucker has an affinity for illiberal autocrats. I mean, he spent time in Hungary. Uh, he often references Hungary as a model um, and, and has made it clear that he finds no reason to criticize these very non-democratic, very non-rights-based uh, 
leaders and models that they promote. And so it was interesting. So as soon as I found out that it wasn't just a, an online joke or meme, um, I sort of pondered what it could look like. And having you know, basically lost two hours than watching it. I found myself just really wondering, like, what else could it have looked like? Because it's, it's one can no longer call him a serious journalist for all the reasons you mentioned. There was no fact checking, the allowing Putin to go off on these monologues, etc. Um, and even more than that, I was really bothered by the body language in terms of the intermittent chuckles or attempts at joviality and connection uh, with this guy, uh, which which suggested something even more troubling. Um, at the most base would be a sort of fanboy uh, hero worship, which uh, which is troubling on many levels. And on the other would be just um, an, a useful idiot par excellence in terms of not recognizing that there was no way that he was ever going to uh, win that discussion, which is exactly why he ended up getting the time. Yeah, I think that's well said. I mean, the Kremlin mocked Carlson before the interview. Putin mocked him to his face, said that, uh, you know, told him about 45 minutes in that he said to Carlson, well, didn't you try to get in the CIA? But they wouldn't take you. Ha <laughs> ha. And, you know, mocking Carlson to his face. And then the, the Kremlin mocked Carlson after it was over. So, they viewed this as nothing but just a platform for, for propaganda. They, they knew that there wasn't going to be much pushback. I wasn't surprised that Carlson at the end asked about uh, the Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovitz, who's been, uh, uh, Gershkovitz has been detained in Russia. Um, and Carlson was right to say he's obviously not a spy. And, you know, um, why don't you release him? I thought, you know, that it, it was obvious that he would make the ask because— um, because it provides a little bit of cover that it was some kind of a tough interview. But also, if the Kremlin had decided, you know what, go ahead, take him back with you. Carlson would have been on this media tour for a week parading around as the savior. And I'm a little surprised that Putin didn't give him that. But um, was there any other part, part of the interview that you thought, hey, at least he's pushing on this? I, I really read the transcript and tried to parse it and find somewhere that I thought, hey, now we're getting somewhere interesting. And I didn't see it. But you are a more trained eye than me. No, no, I, I did not uh, see that. I mean, again, the fact that uh, Putin was able to go off on these monologues was a uh, nuts. I mean, even skilled journalists would have not known where to begin in terms of correcting the many uh, facts and falsehoods being noted in the long diatribes of uh, what Putin describes as Russian history, which was full of um, errors and holes. Um, but even at one point when Putin was going off on a litany of various uh, supposed economic indicators, uh, demonstrating the health of the Russian economy, etc., uh, th there was no there was no pushback on any of that. And, and that was that was very troubling. Um, and there wasn't even any I kept waiting to even see if he would, if Tucker would try to jump in more, if there would be some sort of physical body language, just sort of leaning forward and trying to lean into the conversation. And that didn't happen either. Um, it really was more like a schoolboy listening to a lecture. And one has to wonder whether or not it's really just an interest in ego and being there and being able to um, claim that, um, you know, he's the guy who got this interview as, as if it's a get. Um, but also wondering if there was any thought or concern at all about how this would be used on the Russian side, um, even though uh, there was the mocking of him, you know, before and after. Um, make, make no mistake about it. I mean, the Russian propaganda machine is certainly going to be using 
uh, the clips from the two hour talk um, as they want to, clipping it into the mm -hmm. propaganda they want to use uh, among their own people and within their own propaganda machine. And so basically that was walking right into that, uh, right into that scenario. And, and in the run-up, um, apparently I was reading that the, uh, the interview was being set up and sold to the Russian public as an interview with a very influential American journalist. And so people who aren't informed, um, uh, which is not always easy in a situation where information is so controlled and which is uh, representative of more of the population since so many of the free thinkers, opposition, independents, and educated left since the war started either um, preemptively or because they knew that they had reasonable reason to fear. Um, it's not necessarily a very, very critical audience. So this is going to be fodder to continue to sell their own narratives to the Russian people to try to keep their morale where they want it to be and uh, to point to um, an American system that they disdain and want to disparage. Well, and maybe one other point, and then we're going to talk about a lot of other issues facing the world right now with Dr. Valerie Perry from the Democratization Policy Council. Um, for for people who defended Carlson by saying, well, you know, we at least we finally we we heard Putin's rationale, you know, at least that was that was new. It was not new. It was not new for anyone who has read what Putin himself and the Kremlin have been publishing in the last several years, especially in the six to nine months in the run up to the invasion of Ukraine, uh, the week of the war invasion of Ukraine two year, two years ago this month, Putin himself gave long, a long, uh, I I guess a speech to the Russian people erasing. Ukrainian identity. All of this is not new for anyone who's been been reading along and following along. But if it is new to you, then it it might have seemed plausible considering it was never challenged. And so when he starts his his the discourse in the year eight sixty two, whatever the year was in the eight hundred, the ninth century, and goes forward, if that's all new to you, then maybe this was a powerful interview. But it is nothing new. It is a series of propaganda pieces that have already been published and now recycled to a bigger audience. Um, the one thing that stood out to me is this, and I want to actually, I will quote Putin here, and I want to get your take on this. Dr. Perry, for, for the better part of two years now, uh, there have been comparisons of Russia and Putin to Hitler in Germany, 1939. Um, and, and I know that, you, you know, any comparison to Hitler is fraught. There's all kinds of reasons to try to be very specific in historical con contextualizing. But here was Putin himself talking to Carlson, saying that, um, well, hey, you know, you're asking me why we invaded or, or, or why we are conducting the special operation in Ukraine, as he calls it. And here's what he said. He said, uh, quoting Putin now, by withholding the Danzig corridor from Germany and overstepping boundaries, Poland inadvertently provoked Hitler into initiating World War II by launching an attack against them. Why was it Poland against whom the war started on September 1st, 1939? Poland turned out to be uncompromising, and Hitler had nothing to do but to start implementing his plans with Poland, end quote. In other words, it wasn't Hitler's fault. He had to do it. Poland provoked him into doing it. They, they were just unyielding, awful. They are to blame. And it's the same language he used in that interview for Ukraine. And he basically seems to be comparing himself to Hitler 1939. Or am I overreading that? No, no. I think uh, you've touched on one of the more troubling parts of this um, monologue, basically, that 
Putin was basically trying to make an argument that from his perspective, there's no offense if you frame everything as defense, if you frame everything in terms of victimhood and grievance and try to create a narrative in which you are always the one who's looking for peace and being aggrieved and interpret everything um, that doesn't go the way you want as a reason to start a war, then you can sort of start to see what a foreign policy uh, driven by um, him uh, in, in Russia and what we're seeing what's going on in Ukraine um, looks like and how this would be damaging to the global scene as well um, if he were able to play it out even more. Uh, the, the fact, I mean, it, it's hard to find um, a country that has suffered more uh, at the... Uh, because of Russian aggression over uh, over the centuries, um, but also that suffered more during World War II. And the notion that he was basically blaming Poland um, for what was happening in World War II was ludicrous. Um, but, it, but it certainly was telling. And, and it was also amazing for me when I was listening to this. It was, it was stunning to hear him frame the notion that Poland had been this ally of of Hitler when, when, I mean, when Stalin had been uh, an ally of Hitler until all of a sudden Hitler betrayed him and uh, basically uh, broke the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact. So it was, it, that was one of the elements that really showed the most just out overt uh, fabrication, but was also extremely troubling. And um, it was very easy to imagine that um, listeners in Poland uh, were glad to be in NATO and, and not very comfortable with what they were hearing. Well, Dr. Perry, I've invited some of the the sycophantic defenses of Carlson and Putin already. So let me just get a couple of these out of the way. Uh, a listener says, ah, the U.S. media only lobs softballs to Biden. Um, let, let me respond to that. The media doesn't get to talk to President Biden anymore. President Biden has done half the number of news conferences and one-on-one interviews that Donald Trump did when he was president. And that's not a healthy development. That's not good. He should do more, not less. Um, I disagree that he only gets softballs, but certainly uh, I, I think he needs to do more. I think every elected leader should do more and not less, especially when you're in charge of, of some of the most important decision-making institutions in the world. So he should do more. Second of all, I, I'm looking at this meme that's out there. It's a picture of Barbara Walters with Putin, George Stephanopoulos with Putin, Charlie Rose with Putin, and Tucker Carlson with Putin. And it says, journalism, 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 treason. You know, mocking the idea that, oh, when Tucker Carlson gets an interview, it's treason. It, no, it's not. I'm not calling it treason. I'm saying he's, he was used as a propaganda tool. He came in unprepared and sycophantic, and the result was predictable. So it wasn't journalism. When Stephanopoulos or Barbara Walters asks him unscripted, hard questions that he doesn't really want to answer, he can dodge them. He's very good at that. Russian leadership's always good at that. Uh, but... That is journalism. When you are only giving someone 35 minutes straight to say whatever they want with no pushback, no fact check, no nothing, and then just a smiling thank you, that's not journalism. So anyway, I'm off my soapbox. I'm sorry, Dr. Perry. Anything you want to add there? No, no. I think um, I've, I've been waiting to sort of see the different memes come out. And, and what worries me is that uh, some people who already don't have trust in, in proper media and who might, for whatever reason, have an inclination leaning towards uh, Tucker Carlson's brand of um, entertainment or uh, disinformation, um, are feeding into a process that illiberals and non-democratic leaders want to see, whereby people say, you know, well, there is no such thing as real journalism. They're all the same. They're all corrupt. They're all pushing an agenda. 
um, and, and suggesting that there's no difference between a Walter Cronkite and a Tucker Carlson. Um, and, and that's what's troubling because it's the whittling away of the notion of, of journalism as a profession. It's the whittling of the way of believing that there can ever be truth that you see with your eyes, being able to sort of say, no, I, I saw what happened um, uh, on January 6th, for example. I saw what happened when Russia, when the Russian column of tanks was outside of Kiev, and then when they withdrew, it wasn't because it was an interest in uh, creating a, a, a space for peace, as Putin uh, stated. Um, but it was a withdrawal in the face of an effective Ukrainian um, defense. Mm. And it resulted not only in the withdrawal, but what we saw then of the first um, massive uh, war crimes in Bucha, Irpin, Mariupol, etc. And in, uh, of all of the things, I mean, there were many, many things that were um, ab abhorrent about the fact that Tucker Carlson was not responding. But the, the fact that war crimes uh, against civilians, war crimes in terms of abducted children, that none of that, that came up at all was really egregious. I think that's a, an important observation there. Now let's shift to some other, uh, I, I think, r really important developments, starting with what Donald Trump said about NATO. And I, again, I I want to say to listeners that like th this program is not beholden to the silly theatrical whims of presidential campaigns. We're not going to do you know, we're not going to have a conversation every time someone says something outlandish or outrageous that has become de rigueur. It's not healthy, but it's it's um, you have to sort of pick your spots here. It, it's very strange to even say that, but you, I think you do. Uh, having said all of that, I I would love to hear what Dr. Perry thinks about Donald Trump's remarks about NATO. And regarding that, if you missed it, what Donald Trump said was, uh, he said at a rally that he um, he made a claim that he lectured a, a, a NATO leader. This probably almost certainly didn't happen according to the people who were there, um, McMaster and others. But Trump claims that he, he lectured a, a NATO leader who he didn't name, who asked him, hey, if I haven't paid my NATO bills and Russia invades me, are you going to defend me? And Trump claims that he told them, no, I wouldn't defend you. You'd be on your own. You know, you're deadbeat. Get up, get up to speed on your bills. Don't be delinquent. And then he went on to tell the crowd that he would encourage Russia to do whatever the heck it wants, uh, to invade, to do whatever it wants to NATO members. And he, if he's president again, will not stand by NATO members if they are laid on their bills. And I wonder how that played across Europe. You want to take me through maybe how what you thought, Dr. Perry, and then, you know, as you analyze that, does this come off as a serious issue? Are people rolling their eyes in NATO uh, headquarters? Yeah. What are you seeing? Um, I, I haven't seen the eyeballs, but I suspect that they are um, troubled and, and focused and recognizing that uh, whereas there was a plausible way to say prior to Trump's first administration that it was all bluster, um, that, that now, now we know what he's like. Now we know that he's not going to have uh, reasonable people around him. He's not going to have um, generals who understand um, NATO's role in security around him. He'll really mostly have supplicants who are willing to do what he wants. Um, hearing those comments in South Carolina just you know, so shortly after uh, the Putin interview, uh, really sort of got me thinking. It's like, even if it was totally coincidental, in some ways that's even more troubling because it really suggests the the, the growth of this organically cohesive ecosystem of disinformation in, in this direction, which once out there, 
trickles into social media and to memes, et cetera. And, and of course, I mean, in addition to just being an embarrassing thing for an American uh, former president and uh, possible candidate to say, you know, again, it's, it's also, again, uh, perpetuating a myth. I mean, again, there's nobody owes the United States. NATO does not send a bill. What, whenever talking about NATO members paying, what it's referring to is a non-binding um, statement made years ago that countries would pledge and aim and try to uh, spend at least 2% of their GDP on defense. Um, it's not like they owe uh, the United States money, et cetera. And there has, even before Trump became president, there had been an increase in the number of countries that were increasing their 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 military budgets. Uh, though as of July 2023, some data shows that only 11 of the countries are fully making it. Some are going well and beyond the 2%. Um, but there has been more of an investment in defense, especially um, after the invasion. But then I was also extremely troubled by the fact that people listening to this and thinking that NATO was just um, some fluffy, useless Euro um, joke on the United States is, is, again, missing the point of this being a values-based alliance that has actually served the United States extremely well on a number of levels. The Article 5 that Trump basically said he would ignore has been used precisely once in history, and that was in support of the United States after 9-11. Um, the foreign minister of Poland made a good statement this past weekend, noting that Poland sent a brigade to Afghanistan because of this, and they sure never sent the United States a bill. And, and so this is how an alliance works. And, and none of that is getting um, out there in the uh, disinformation ecosystem that has surrounded um, commentators like Carlson and others, um, but also some of the uh, elected political leaders um, who seem more ready to follow the party of Trump than to even think about what the party of Reagan was in terms of international affairs. Well, and can, can you describe what it um, what possible damage is done, Dr. Perry, to an institution like NATO when the relationship among its members becomes one that is purely transactional and not actually based on values? I say that because if the values are supposed to be what guides our actions, then it's one thing to say we've got to come up with means to make sure the smaller members are still paying what they're supposed to pay. Uh, but if, if you're not even going to defend against an attack, it does become purely transactional, doesn't it? Um, it, it does. And then it, seeks to be a, it ceases to be an alliance. And, and I think that's what the most troubling part is. Um, it, it was good and heartening to see that um, uh, recently the U.S. Congress has basically uh, noted that uh, the United States would not be able to withdraw from NATO uh, without Senate um, support on that. So that's an additional guardrail. But a Trump administration or something similar to a Trump administration, um, if the Trump ideology continues um, after him, um, could whittle away at NATO while remaining in it, either by reducing the number of troops, uh, American troops in Europe, reducing the number of engagements with other NATO countries, uh, trainings, exercises, uh, lessons learned centers, etc. And could certainly, of course, um, all of this bluster, all of these comments are aimed at weakening the faith and the confidence in what is a values-based, trust-based system, uh, which again, plays right into the hands of someone like Putin, who has wanted to see NATO uh, weakened um, for years. And so then this is again, one of the reasons that it was, it was completely irresponsible of someone like uh, Carlson to give a platform 
uh, for Putin's view of history and why he, again, feels that he's the victim. Uh, he and Russia are the victim of NATO, the US, the CIA, everyone except for him and his own uh, oligarchs around him. And, and now, again, there's this new set of film clips, uh, video clips out there that are going to be manipulated uh, globally. Uh, Joel writes to us to say uh, the comments you're talking about from Trump uh, being upset with NATO members not being totally current on their bills. Joel says this coming from a man who doesn't pay his own bills. That's actually it's actually a really good point from Joel. Yeah. Um, and, and for those who want to valorize Trump as some hero of the working class, of just somebody who wants to make sure everyone's paying their fair share, uh there are countless stories, and I've spoken to some people personally whose companies did work for Trump, uh, Trump hotels. Um, I won't get into all of the private conversations I've had, but the amount of times that that company, led by Donald Trump, decided at the end of a long work arrangement, we're going to pay you half. And then we mm -hmm. don't think you've got the legal firepower to come after us in court, and you're just going to have to eat it because we can. That, those stories are so common that I can't even believe that that wasn't disqualifying. But Joel's point is, it's pretty rich to hear a man who led that kind of behavior in his business practices now lecturing NATO members. And I guess, Dr. Perry, I should have thought of that before Joel did. That's a pretty good point. No, it's uh, I had the same I had the same thought as Joel. Um, but but Putin also played this quite savvily as well in the sense that. Uh, in his messaging, he was basically saying to Tucker, but basically to the United States and anyone who's doubting American support for Ukraine or for NATO, uh, don't you have anything better to do? Uh, mentioning the border crisis, mentioning the debt, etc. And this feeds into the narrative of some of the uh, MAGA base, so the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the other. Um, I would say non-serious politicians who are just seeking to disrupt and have a platform. This gives them more fodder that they can try to use. They can say, see, yes, this is the way we need to be working. We need to say, have more money here at home. We need to stop sending money overseas. We need to stop um, supporting you know, deadbeats overseas, et cetera, which is, again, all a pack of lies. Um, I saw that on um, his Truth Social that Trump had also made a comment saying that he would stop foreign aid and turn it into loans, which, again, is laughable. It's um, based on the premise that foreign aid, that engagement overseas, that being a non-isolationist constructive member of the international community doesn't gain anything for us. And yet it does. Um, the more uh, wealthy countries, the more functional countries out there, the less we have to worry about security with them. And the more we have markets uh, for our own goods and services. So, so the, the notion that we get nothing from our foreign policy is ludicrous and telegraphs what a more isolationist uh, second Trump administration policy would look like. Well, and so let me give you a sense, Dr. Perry, of some of my concerns about the defense of Trump's remarks regarding NATO. But I'm going to try to steel man this. I don't want to straw man any arguments here. I really want to engage with mm -hmm. what the arguments are saying. So uh, I'll give you two examples of what I've been hearing in the last few days about this. The first comes from U.S. Senator Marco Rubio, who said that, look, we don't have to wonder what kind of policy Donald Trump would carry toward NATO. He was president for four years. He didn't take the United States out of NATO. He didn't try to dismantle the alliance. And everyone is, is freaking out over nothing. We have four years of his presidency to draw on. Then there's journalist Michael Tracy essentially saying the same thing. He writes, quote, every single thing people are shrieking about is what they shrieked about in 2016, about what Trump would supposedly do with respect to NATO policy. They all turned out to be completely provably wrong then. Trump never deviated from the NATO treaty. 
His administration never recognized the Russian seizure of Crimea. Trump did not end sanctions against Russia. He increased sanctions. To repeat, these people were diametrically wrong about every single thing that they were saying Trump was supposedly going to do with respect to NATO policy, but they still have not revised their premises one iota. Instead, they're currently in the process of doing the exact same hysterical thing they did in 2016, except that this time they've got four years of contradictory evidence that they're going to completely ignore, end quote. So um, as someone who would love to have a chance to talk to the Donald Trumps of the world about this, what I would say to Rubio, what I would say to Michael Tracy is I, I understand that argument and I would like to believe that there is a basis to feel comforted by it. I also think it's extremely lazy just to say, well, he was president for four years and he'll do the exact same thing. What we saw by the end of his four years was that he had run out of people who were there for the first three, three and a half, who had institutional knowledge, who had working relationships around the world. And he was very quickly replacing just about everybody, even in high positions of power, with, with simple apparatchiks who really had very, very different views on NATO, on U.S. policy, on protectionism, um, all kinds of, uh, of very, very different policies that I think if given another year or two or three or four would have flowered into a very different set of actions. I don't think Donald Trump thinks deeply about NATO or history. I think that much is pretty clear. Um, but the idea that, well, he had a four-year presidency, he'll do exactly the same thing. The world conditions are different. There's a, a, a war that Russia is is running and we don't know who will be around him leading those decisions. So I don't think you can just feel comforted by that. Um, having said that, I, I, I want to at least engage with Rubio and with Tracy, Dr. Perry, who are saying, calm down, everybody. You act like he hasn't been president already and he didn't do all those things you said he was going to do. Does that comfort you? Uh, not at all. And it was very troubling to hear that coming from Marco Rubio, who is um, he, he's an intelligent person. He should know better. And it's worrying because it demonstrates again how this has become the party of Trump and that even uh, once normal Republicans with whom one might have legitimate policy disagreements are now going in um, hook, line and sinker uh, into what he says. Uh, you hit the nail on the head by uh, noting that the problem is that by the end of the first Trump administration, all of the competent institutional and responsible um, people had left. And when we saw what happened when all of a sudden people who came in, um, either because they just wanted their first shot close to power or because they truly believed in whatever it is uh, that MAGA Trump ideology might be. And, and we saw what those results would be. It, it's it's worrying to think about who would be staffing um, a Trump cabinet, who his running mace would be, when he always would refer to his generals, etc. Um there's not a ton of uh, credible generals out there who would think that leaving the NATO alliance is going to make the United States more secure. Um, but I do worry that he's going to get some of the least credible, um, the least credible ones on his team. Um, it was, I think it's also important to see that the, the years during the Trump administration and uh, since it have provided time for supporters of Trump to sort of get some of their ducks in a row, whether that would be in terms of putting together a plan about how they could actually uh, implement some of the draconian measures they might want um, at the border, for example, that they couldn't do the first time because they didn't know how to do it um, through the legal processes. Uh, th there's been a learning process that we've seen. And so we can, I think we can be pretty certain that the combination of having learned how Washington works, 
um, no longer being um, in a surprised we won sort of position when, when they came into office. And, and the fact that there is now an infrastructure of support around the party um, is all troubling. And, and I think what's also worrying is that look at how many of the moderate Republicans have decided to step down and leave Congress in the past several years. They were actually at least voices that we could have had some hope were sort of trying to push the conversation in a different direction. Um, and as they've seen their own party go in this um, unfortunate direction and have left, uh, there's reason to be concerned that moderates aren't going to come into those seats because otherwise, if, otherwise they probably would have stayed there if they weren't sort of seeing the writing on the wall in terms of politics, uh, gerrymandering, and the uh, polarized ecosystems. So, so I think when, whenever I hear people sort of refer to the so-called Trump derangement syndrome, et cetera, it's again trying to sort of diminish and belittle um, any uh, reasonable concerns about what reasonable people should be concerned about. Talking to Dr. Valerie Perry, listeners, if you want to weigh in on these matters, you can email the program connections at WXXI.org, connections at WXXI.org. You can call the program toll-free, 844-295-TALK. It's 844-295-8255, 263-WXXI if you're in Rochester, 263-9994. That's where we find Jane in Rochester. Hi, Jane, go ahead. Uh, yes, Evan. Um, I really think that Biden can handle the issues that are occurring now without Donald Trump's help. But I remember something that he keeps bringing up. It was in that book uh, entitled Fear by Bob Woodward. Uh, fear, fear. That's the way to power. Uh, you recall him saying that? You don't get what you want through love. You have to scare people into doing just what you want. It's very totalitarian. It really is. Uh, I wish he'd stay out of the government while he's not even in any position to do so. But uh, I also have to think back. I'm trying to get at motive. Of course, we know, and I hate to say Hitler again, his uh, fanatical idea was a thousand-year Reich. Well, it lasted 12 years. Uh, but anyway, and, and the Bushes kept talking about the new American century. They never, so far as I know, told us what that was. But I wonder if that's in this, too. What are they after? But he, he's just talented at, at destruction and alienating people. And I hope that, that people understand that, that we're in a world where we have to learn to go along together. But what I wanted to ask was, is there an opinion on what he is after? Does he think he will win friends by this fear-mongering? Uh, what is it, control? Uh, Are you talking about Donald Trump? Yeah, uh-huh. Okay. Okay, what is his motive for saying such a thing and intruding? Is it to show he's a tough guy to his his voters or would-be voters? You better go along with me. Look how mighty I am. I'm just confused at why he would be so destructive like this to me. And uh, he, he does tend to shake people down and make them do what he wants them to do. But uh, this this outrage is maybe it's good. People see for sure now what kind of a person he's going to alienate our allies. Anyway, thank you very much, Evan. Thank you, Jane. Uh, Dr. Perry? 
No, I mean, I think Jane is right. Um, I think that fear is a tactic and a tool. Uh, fear together with victimhood, grievance, uh, looking for scapegoats, people to blame, and an also reference to a false, um, an often false glorious past, the notion of trying to make America great again, return to the uh, imperial Russian empire period, etc. I mean, these are the tactics that are used by leaders who want to have and want to see a more um, illiberal, anti-democratic approach. Um, Putin, I believe, I mean, it, I mean, as an armchair um, observer and reader, um, Putin at least does have a more coherent vision of what he wants to see in terms of uh, breaking down the liberal world order that emerged after World War II. And in terms of taking Russia back um, socially and culturally and politically, to a system where it's farther away than ever from rights-based democratic accountability, um, it, from everything related to women's rights, to the role of the church, and the whole way that the hierarchy of society can be structured. In terms of what Trump thinks and what he wants, I mean, it, it's hard to say since, I mean, when he ran the first time, I mean, the Republican Party didn't have a platform. I mean, that's one of the things that I'm very curious to see is if he is indeed the um, the Republican candidate, as it looks like he's on the road to become, will the Republican Party allow itself to again be debased to the point where there's no written platform? And, and, and again, you can have uh, reasonable policy differences with a party, but the notion that the party of Reagan uh, would allow itself to become a cult of personality without a program is, is troubling. Um, and then lastly, I would just say that um, one thing we've learned about Trump is that uh, he, he liked to dominate the news cycle. So the more outrageous thing he can say, the more people talk about it, and the more he dominates uh, the news, even if it's for very terrible and ultimately um, dangerous reasons. Can I ask you a question about uh, the length of campaigns, Dr. Perry? I bring this up because... Um, you know, I spent the last few days thinking about the fact that both parties seem to be saying, well, it's too late to change candidates now. We're only nine months away to the election. Yeah. And in up in Canada, they call an election. And now, granted, they've got some idea things are coming and it's a different system. But, you know, they rolled along in about six to eight weeks um, and then they get on with their lives. And, um, you know, elections get called and, and run in much shorter times than the years long campaigns. So I suppose that in a year where you're nine months away to an election, if you're used to a years-long campaign, you think it's too late to change candidates. And this is not going to devolve into a conversation about age. I get emails from listeners every day, some about Trump's age and his mental acuity, some about Biden's. Um, we, it is valuable to remember that these are the oldest candidates who've ever run for president on major party lines. This is not uh, a historical thing. This is a new thing that we're doing, that we're running people this old. And Voters will have to decide what they make of all of that. I don't need emails telling me that, that well, Trump is also showing. I get it. I get it. I just want to ask you, Dr. Perry, when you look at um, pro-democracy movements, when you look at the way elections are conducted, is it strange looking at this country saying, boy, I guess the cake is baked because there's only nine months to an election? Or do you think, look, the system is very different in the United States and the cake probably is baked? And Because if Donald Trump had a catastrophic accident or died, if Joe Biden had a catastrophic accident or died, no one is wishing that. I'm certainly not wishing that. Of course, the parties would find somebody else and there would be someone else on the ballot come November. But they're acting like things are baked. And I just want to ask you if that cake it really is baked. Uh, it, it shouldn't be. And, and you're right that it's become uh, shameful that these 
election cycles uh, play out over such a long period of time in a way that's almost more like entertainment and sport mm. than mm -hmm. really informing us with anything. And and I, I mean, I ha can't help but link that to two uh, in generally negative developments, one being, again, money and politics. I mean, who's making, who's profiting from a lot of this? It's, you know, it's the PACs, it's the super PACs, it's um, media organizations who are constantly raising money to um, play out these campaigns and you wouldn't have as much money out there. And then in turn, as much influence on whoever wins if it was a shorter period. I mean, if you can spend a lot of money in you know nine months, 18 months, and you would not be able to spend as much money if it was a more reasonable four month cycle. I think the uh, advent of the 24-hour news cycles feeds into this too. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember, you know, when you would watch the evening news and you'd watch Meet the Press on Sundays and you would know what was going on. And, and the world went on pretty well in between and you had local news and you sent your kids to school and life went on. Um, politics and policy should not be a sport. It should be serious, but boring. It should not be a play-by-play -play where people are looking for winners and losers. And I, I fear that the combination of so much money, mostly and very often dark money, um, but also the 24-hour media cycle that needs to make its money by feeding this shock, by feeding this outrage, and by extending this season as long as they can. All right, let me get Keith on the phone next. Hi, Keith, go ahead. Devin, how are you doing? Very interesting show. I, I agree with the uh, professor wholeheartedly that you won't see any uh, changes in campaigns because too many people make too much money. Uh, so why, why change it if I'm going to lose money? But I, I think what Trump's ulterior motive is, is uh, to save himself. Because I can see a scenario where he may lose some of these uh, federal indictments that he has against him. But if he gets elected, he could play that, let's court run the way it goes. Then he could re resign saying he has to take care of his business empire. They need him, blah, blah, blah. And then his vice president, who would just be a lackey, would pardon him for all his federal crimes. I, I could just see this happening. Well, Keith, thank you for the call. I, I'm going to let Dr. Perry weigh in on that with my... Additional question for Dr. Perry. Um, I'm curious to know how often you see uh, Democratic norms eroded when political winners of a moment use their power to imprison or investigate. I, I am obviously naturally very suspicious and careful uh, about wanting to see a whole lot of that because the moment politics becomes a, hey, when we win, we're coming after you, then you really don't have a working system. At the same time, if someone has in fact committed serious crimes and abuse of office, I don't know how you don't seek to prosecute that, even if the inevitable result is that a party will respond by saying, well, we're going to do the same to you when we get power. How do we square all this? You know, I, I think uh, I think Keith raises a good point, and as do you. And I, I think it is reasonable to expect that one of the reasons Trump wants to win, in addition to just wanting to play and win, is to try to protect himself from these indictments and to possibly seek a pardon, as he noted. Um, and and I, it, it's it's then interesting as well to see that some of the people whom he's surrounded himself with, you know, back. You know, in, in his first uh, campaign and administration and, and the people he's with now, um, 
do have agendas that can seem an awful lot like just wanting to burn the whole system down, uh, whether that would be something like the UN or NATO um, or various elements of the American um, social system. Uh, that they don't like. Uh, the people who have wanted to repeal the New Deal and Johnson's um, efforts at a great society um, from the moment the ink on those agreements dried. And so, so we have to worry, we have to remember that Trump has been a very effectively um, able to carry these people along with him and can often be you know, the elephant in the room that sucks up all the oxygen. But but it is troubling that we've seen that there sure are a lot of uh, fairly wealthy and influential people who seem to prefer thinking about the United States as a place for some sort of uh, less accountable democracy uh, where inequality is built into the system and oligarchy and basically having to pay to play mm -hmm. is the rule of the game. I was very troubled when I would hear people, uh, uh, some Republicans commenting some years ago saying, well, the U.S. is not a democracy, it's a republic. And, and I mean, again, not to go into political science 101, but that, that was very troubling to think that um, elected officials were selling that. Um, in, in terms of what you're noting as well, it, it, you're right. I mean, it is not a healthy sign of any government or um, polity to get into this cycle where if you lose, you're going to jail. Um, and this is why this has been such an unfortunate situation, because in the United States, where we fortunately still do have an independent judicial system, um, there is a requirement to... Um, you know, follow the rule of law when crimes are committed. Um, you can quibble about the various indictments or which are more or less important, but the fact that uh, the various um, trials have gotten underway in different jurisdictions in itself is evidence that it's not a top-down politicized um, judicial system. There are a lot of people who would have liked to have said, let's just focus on Georgia. Let's not look at some of these other cases. Um, but, um, but this is a system we've got, and this is a system that we should be afraid of losing. Uh, Andrew writes in to ask, who does your guest think is doing democracy well in the world right now? It's a great question, <laughs> no, that, Andrew. No, it is a good question. And it is troubling because so many um, countries are struggling on this. Um, when, when looking at the community of democracies, you can always point at some of the countries in Scandinavia where there's a social uh, safety net, et cetera. But we've seen the rise of the right in Sweden, for example, as, as well as others. And so there's there are threats there. And, and some of those drivers are very similar to what we've seen in the United States in terms of scapegoating and fear of migrants, uh, fear of the other being used by the right to move forward. Um, Taiwan has a lot to lose. Taiwan wants to embrace democracy because they know what could happen if they don't have it. Mm. Uh, South Korea is a very interesting case as well. And uh, when we, when you look around the country, around the world, even in the imperfect countries, you can very often see um, um, the democratic opposition seeking to sort of retrench and try to do a better job of explaining why democracy is important. And, and that was one thing that I was really thinking about while watching the Carlson-Putin interview is, thinking about, again about how important it is that regular Americans who don't care anything about national security recognize uh, why NATO, why having the United States being a constructive world player is important. And, and I think you can really boil it down to social, political, and economic. Socially speaking, um, the, the vision of that Putin would like to see and that Tucker has been promoting either by him 
or with Orban is one that would be very bad for women's rights, very bad for the feminist movement, very bad for minorities who don't fit in to the patriarchal structure of God, king, and uh, head of household that is part and parcel of the uh, Ruski Mir ideology that Putin has. Second, I would say it would be economics. I mean, it's impossible to imagine the a steady growth of um, the middle class in the 60s and 50s, 60s, and 70s without having had the transatlantic alliance that emerged after World War II and not only created more trading opportunities with Europe, but, but created a safe and secure environment in which all of that happened. And we need to appreciate that that happened and that this does have economic influence and burning it all down will end up having a great impact on supply chain, inflation, et cetera, um, which is what people who are gravitating towards uh, Trump's narratives are saying they don't want to see. And, and then finally, um, the political. The more that trust in um, systems, structures, media, and one's neighbor is eroded, the easier it is for illiberals to come in and further degrade everything it is that we want to see that creates the United States, that creates a democratic system where people do feel that while imperfect, they have access to accountable leaders. They don't have to worry about paying a bribe to get their kid into a high school and where they generally think the system works. And if they think it's not working, that they can play a role in trying to make it better. That's exactly the type of engagement that people like Putin do not want to see. They want to sell a message of helplessness and just becoming basically a supplicant that's quiet and that goes along with what the leader wants. Let me squeeze in one more call from John in Rochester. Hi, John, go ahead. Hey, uh, I'm wondering what the heads of the Orthodox churches in Ukraine and Russia uh, have ever commented about the conflict there. Well, I, uh, Dr. Perry, I think that the head of the Orthodox Church in Russia has just been sort of an arm of the state. I don't know if that's right yes. or wrong. No, that is right. You know, and it's interesting that the Ukrainian uh, Orthodox have been seeking to distance themselves more and more from what they see coming out of Russia um, because they've seen what it's been doing to their people and their parish. Um, the Ukrainians celebrate Christmas on December 25th, not the same day that the Russian Orthodox do. But I, I'm glad that he mentioned religion because one of the other things that I found very um, troubling and even, even disgusting was when uh, Tucker Carlson, towards the end of the interview, raised the issue of religion. Uh, following part of Putin's monologue where he claimed that Jews, Buddhists, and Muslims had always been a welcome part of the Russian empire, which is demonstrably false. And, and Carlson used it as an opportunity to, first of all, uh, call Putin a Christian and say that, you know, you as a Christian and as a leader. Um, and then to also reference um, the fact that in Tucker Carlson's reading of world religions, that Christianity is the only truly peaceful religion, um, <laughs> saying that Jesus had turned the other cheek. And, and again, any scholar of religion would know that that's laughable. But it was important to see that he was doing this because it, it demonstrated, again, the extent to which he is willing to create a path for especially uh, Christian evangelical voters who have been gravitating towards Trump and that vision of, uh, of a leadership for America, 
to make it easier for them to sort of also see that perhaps the way that Putin is moving things forward is the way to go. And you could have seen this as well in looking at Hungary when Carlson has spoken about such issues. And again, that should be troubling and it should trouble anybody of faith. And it should certainly trouble um, people who consider themselves to be Christians and who would certainly not want to um, live in a regime where religion is treated the way it is in Russia. We are always grateful for the time from Dr. Valerie Perry, Senior Associate with the Democratization Policy Council, uh, joining us from Sarajevo and having a chance to, to talk to us about a wide range of events, not just what's happening in the United States, but how certain movements and events sort of line up in the context there. Dr. Perry, we, we benefit from it so much. I can't tell you how much really, really, uh, I think, appreciative feedback is how I would describe it. I get from listeners after your appearances. So please stay in touch. Come back soon or, or whenever it suits here. Thanks, Evan. And thanks to all the listeners. Great questions. That's Dr. Valerie Perry with us on this Tuesday afternoon. More connections coming up in just a moment.